Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. Hello and welcome to the TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network, our monthly podcast on how to take back control from the super rich and powerful and how to reprogram our economies to work for all of us. I'm the producer and host, Naomi Fowler. I'm joined each month by the Tax Justice Network's John Christensen. Say hello, John. Uh, Hello, how are you? Coming up later, you'll hear our part two on tax and systemic racism. As we continue to ignore the racist history of the tax code, ignore the fact that policy is not race neutral, and that the tax system is not immune to racism, then we will continue to see the impact of black and brown communities and communities of color worsen in the most negative ways. More on that later. So this month has been somewhat of a vindication for the Tax Justice Network, yet again, for estimating so long ago the amounts of wealth stashed offshore. So John, let's look at the context first. One of the Tax Justice Network's first major demands to unlock the numbers on global wealth stashed offshore was the automatic exchange of information on bank accounts between nations. Back in the early 2000s, people laughed at this idea. They said it would never happen. It used to all be done on by information upon request, which was a joke. Um, but it has slowly, if imperfectly, been adopted by many countries. And the OECD's just announced that nearly 100 countries carried out automatic exchange of information in 2019. And that means tax authorities have got the data of 84 million financial accounts held offshore by their residents, covering total assets of 10 trillion euros. So hidden accounts, unhidden, means more tax revenue. Trillions of dollars of offshore assets are now in tax authorities' sites that wouldn't otherwise ever have been. Tell us the story, John, on this for the Tax Justice Network. Yes, it's true. Less than 10 years ago, the head of the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development told me that automatic information exchange wouldn't happen in my lifetime. And here we are, and we've got automatic information exchange as a global standard Not perfect yet, but a work in progress, great. But the reason it's so important is because people who've been paying attention to the offshore world of secrecy jurisdictions and tax havens knew that the sums involved, the sums of private wealth and corporate wealth sitting offshore untaxed were simply eye-watering. Let me give you an idea. Back in 2005, when Tax Justice Network was just getting started, I got some information out of the Boston Management Consulting Group, had some limited data on offshore wealth, and I also had some limited information from the Bank for International Settlements, and I had a little bit of information from the IMF. And working with that, Richard Murphy and I came up with a figure of 11.5 trillion US dollars of personal wealth sitting offshore. And yet we knew all along that that was just a small part of the figures. And that 11.5 trillion generated huge newspaper headlines, but we knew it was far, far too low. But others were telling us, no, it's nothing like that. It's far, far smaller. You've got it totally wrong. The gaps in our data sets were enormous. For example, there was no information about capital flows out of Africa. In other words, all those illicit financial flows accumulating over decades out of coming out of Africa, they weren't part of the, the data sets. And subsequently, one of the senior regulators in Jersey, in the tax haven of Jersey, said that our estimates of the volume of wealth held in trusts 
just in Jersey was about half of their estimates. So we knew we'd, we'd arrived at a very conservative picture. But I also knew that there was this person in New York who had a much better data set. And I think it was towards the year end of 2005, I went to New York and I met up with Jim Henry for the first time. And, and I realised Jim Henry had much, much better data than we could even dream about. Right, and we've got Jim Henry, the Tax Justice Network senior advisor, with us today. Jim, you got so much closer than anyone else ever has with these estimates that you did, and they are so difficult to estimate, and you've called it yourself, you've called it an exercise in night vision, <laughs> and you estimated offshore wealth to be between 21 trillion to 32 trillion, much higher than other estimates, now borne out by these OECD figures. What does this mean now for the world? Well, it means we've discovered an eighth continent of, uh, of wealth, really. I mean, this is the equivalent of, you know, the combined uh, wealth of a lot of developing countries is sitting there. What we did in our estimates uh, that we published in 2012 uh, with Tax Justice Network support was to really look at this as a kind of a black hole. And when, you know, astronomers estimate the size of a black hole, they triangulate on the methods because you can't see... Uh, the entity itself, because it traps all of the light. So you have to look at it indirectly by looking at other metrics. So one of the methods we used was the one that John referred to, and we updated that and I think uh, got some more accurate information on the volume of so-called uh, cross-border deposits. The Bank for International Settlements uh, publishes data on that. Deposits are only a share of the total portfolio of wealth that's held offshore, and so we also interviewed private bankers who said that, you know, this is on average you know, like 25 uh, to 30 percent or even less as a, as a fraction of the total portfolio. Uh, so you actually have to get a, an estimate. You can scale up the deposit number that we had back then from the Bank for International Settlements by a factor of four to five. And so that led to our original estimates of, you know, 21 to 32 trillion. In addition to that, we also looked at capital flight that was pouring out of the developing countries. And the World Bank published a, a lot of uh, balance of payments data on you know, the, the amount of loans and foreign investments that were supposedly flowing into countries specifically like Brazil or Mexico. And the, the volume of international reserves and the current account that were used to uh, were being financed by this foreign capital. And you saw big discrepancies in these numbers. When you added up those discrepancies, it, it turned out that the, the developing world as a whole was is actually uh, suffering a lot of illicit flows, uh, unrecorded foreign uh, investments, usually by the wealthiest people in the, in the countries, and kleptocrats as well, who were moving money offshore, hiding it in havens and uh, been investing it mainly in the first world countries. So that allowed a second method for estimating this overall total. When you accumulated those uh, flows and looked at what they might be earning offshore, you found that the, the value of the private offshore financial wealth was on the order from the developing world on the order of $12 trillion. And so that's you know consistent with the overall estimates from 21 to 32 for the world as a whole. But it's important, especially for developing countries, because that, compared with their foreign debt and their offshore reserves, shows that they're basically a net creditor 
of uh, the rich world, because most of this money is not invested in Cayman Islands or Panama. It's basically invested in London and New York and Zurich. So that's an important finding, especially for developing countries. And the third estimate we got was just to go to the private banks themselves, the top 100 international private banks as of 2010, had a total of 12 trillion of offshore deposits and so-called client assets that they were reporting. And the top 10 of those banks, institutions like UBS and Credit Suisse and JP Morgan, Citibank, HSBC, Barclays, these players, the so-called international private banks, had set up departments, private banking departments, global wealth management, they, they call them now, to basically help wealthy people in all over the planet, including developing countries, take money out of their countries, hide it, secure it, and, and invest it generally tax-free. And this is, you know, really an important part of this finding because our estimates are much more consistent with the existence and the importance of this global haven industry, which is led not by, you know, shady banks and sultry paradises or dubious law firms <laughs> in places like Panama, but folks that are in the very heartlands of the first world uh, financial centers like City of London, certainly New York and uh, Frankfurt, Zurich. These are the, the real financial capitals of capital flight. It's important to note that the 10 trillion euro number that you came up with leaves out the United States, which is one of the big recipients of these offshore deposits. Right. The United States still refuses to participate. I mean, it did a U-turn under the Obama administration. And as we know, the US is the tax haven of choice for the world. Second place in our financial secrecy index in terms of secrecy and scale. Isn't it a disgrace that they still aren't participating in a global standard? Yeah, it's absolutely a disgrace. And it's, you know, this is an ongoing problem. I mean, basically, Wall Street doesn't care which party it is. It's the kind of the bankster party. So they have a you know, two or 3,000 lobbyists in Washington representing the financial services industry, very big contributors to elections right up to now. Um, there have been other analysts over time who have made a lot of noise about lower estimates. Basically, you know, what we've shown in the OECD estimates is that we can have a lot of confidence in the, the scale and order of magnitude of this much larger range. That That's an important, I think, validation of the three-pronged estimation method that we used and uh, this fundamental critique that we've had of this global system. Thanks, John. Thanks, Jim. Now it's time for the TaxCast special feature. In episode 102 of the TaxCast, we looked at the way white supremacy is embedded in the US tax system. We looked at how wealth is still overwhelmingly in white hands passed down from generation to generation since the times of slavery. Those advantages continue, with white families disproportionately benefiting from laws that were created to make taxing them extremely difficult. In so many countries, people of colour and marginalised communities still face barriers to full and equal economic participation. There are huge costs for people when they're discriminated against in so many ways, it's a painful thing. But if governments don't care about people, they should at least care about the economic damage their structural racism is causing. Because you get lower levels of innovation and productive economic activity. And that means less tax revenue. And that means 
weaker public services to make people's lives better. This is Sean Rochester, author of the book The Black Tax, The Cost of Being Black in America. He's giving a talk here at Hofstra University. How is it that after 400 years, over 40 million African-Americans only own about 2% of U.S. wealth? Now, normally when we talk about discrimination, we talk about it from the perspective of the injustice or the immorality associated with it. I wanted to look at things a little differently. I wanted to look at what is the financial cost associated with it? And more importantly, what does research say that those costs are? What we have to remember is that people were emancipated. They left bondage with no capital, no resources. In 1870, African-Americans owned about 0.17% of U.S. wealth. It's effectively nothing. Right now, there was some talk about providing land, right? And a mule that's the 40 acres of a mule. We all heard about that, right? Uh, that of course never happened. Uh, there is something that did happen that's called the Homestead Act, right? In 1862, Congress passed this law, the Homestead Act, and because of this law, they would proceed to distribute about 246 million acres to 1.5 million white families. You're talking about $1.6 trillion in total, or the equivalent of about a million dollars a family on the high end. So that means, you know, you could be an immigrant coming from another country, you have a chance to claim this land, and if you did, you took possession of it after five years. So you could come here literally with nothing but the shirt on your back, and in five years be in an extraordinary financial position. Now, researchers say that there are about up to 93 million uh, white Americans are direct beneficiaries of this, direct beneficiaries, not tertiary, not secondary, not kind of, sort of, some way related, direct of a massive, you know, government giveaway. In terms of the potential of land that would have been distributed, you're talking about on the high end, about a trillion dollars that was denied, right? But at the same time, $1.6 trillion worth of value was distributed. Important to know. Another reason why proper inheritance taxes are key to reparational justice. Even after slavery was abolished, most African Americans worked in slavery-like conditions, and less than 1% of African Americans had access to mortgages. Affordable loans are still difficult. And there's education. Sean Rochester again. In the South, for every dollar invested in a black child, you have five to eight invested to educate a white child. Uh, black teachers in the South are being paid 25 to 34% on the dollar of what white teachers are being paid. White students are receiving 50% more years of education by the time they are 25. Massive differential and in investment in human capital. It is so substantial that researchers say, listen, if you had just invested in the children the same, just keep all the discrimination and stuff in the marketplace, just invested in the children the same, that could have cut the income gap by up to 50%, just doing that. So when you start talking about this happening across millions of children for up to 90 years in a generation, you're talking about over $600 billion of financial impact. And across that period of time, you're talking about up to $3 trillion. So there is a cost 
to discrimination. That's the cost to black people, right? But what was lost by the country from not taking advantage of fully integrating black talent and excellence into the economy? And I want to look at it from an innovation standpoint. We'd be looking at another 280,000 patents. No innovation, no America as we know it. You're talking about over $2 trillion in national income that we don't have now, year over year. You're talking about over $9 trillion in net worth that we don't have now. Having talented people involved in the innovation process is super critical. Now, a researcher from University, Michigan State University did a really interesting study. She asked this, I thought was a profound question, which is, what would have happened to innovation? if white Americans had experienced the level of trauma that black Americans experienced? It's a really profound question. And her research says that 40% of the patents would have never been created. You don't do discoveries in, in trauma. You need time and space to focus on stuff like that, right? 40% of the patents, that's a million patents. Which of these things would be infected by that? Light bulbs and photocopiers, movies, and transistors, and so on and so forth. What would be the economic impact in terms of revenue? You're talking about over $7 trillion of revenue and over $30 trillion in net wealth. Astounding figures. And the structural disadvantages and exclusion faced by people of colour has been devastatingly clear in the coronavirus pandemic. It's disproportionately made them ill and resulted in many deaths. People of colour in the UK have also suffered disproportionately. Let's talk about the most basic human right, access to healthcare free at the point of delivery. Well, in the US's marketised system, people of colour are the ones who tend to have the least access. The UK's public healthcare system has been undermined by private interests for years and it's now at grave risk from the US trade talks post-Brexit. We discussed that in episode 92 of the Tatscast. Sadly, the British Parliament's just voted against a clause in the trade bill that would have protected our National Health Service from any form of control from outside the UK. Any policy that denies a basic human right of access to healthcare in a modern world is a devastatingly bad political choice. In the United States, about 27 million people don't have any health insurance. Many more millions are underinsured. And so many of those who do have cover struggle. Insurance premiums paid by employers are pretty much compulsory. And they reduce your wages a lot. Here's economist Gabriel Zuckman. I want to talk about how unfair that system is and uh, how it could be replaced by uh, something more sustainable. The way this works today is that health insurance for workers is funded through what you could call a huge privatized poll tax. It's like a tax, but it's a private tax. And it's crashing because this tax is growing very fast. Private health insurance premiums now amount to 7% of national income. That's about 10% of labor compensation in the US. The current premiums are so regressive, are so unfair, if you replace those by taxes that are proportional to income, or maybe more than proportional to income, progressive, higher rates when your income rises, this would lead to a huge reduction in costs 
for the vast majority of working families is if you do this very simple fix, you replace insurance premiums that are fixed amounts per head today by taxes based on ability to pay, you ensure that more than 90%, maybe up to 95% of Americans benefit from such a change in funding and for tens of millions of Americans, that's the biggest take-home pay increase in a generation. So, for all that politicians love to talk about tax cuts, in the United States they keep on failing to repeal and reform this most unfair private tax of all. When we were hit with COVID-19 and the coronavirus struck, it was clear that states needed to adopt Medicaid expansion and extend health care to people who were most in need and people who were undocumented, people who didn't have access. Courtney Sanders of the Centre on Budget and Policy Priorities. In the U.S., there are huge disparities among people of color, specifically black people and Hispanic and Latinx people. We know that they are in need of this. In this very crucial time, it it is crucial to keep people healthy (laughs) and safe containing the spread of the virus. And we can only do that if people have access to good health care. And with COVID, you know, we may all be in this together, but the impact is not the same. And as we continue to ignore the racist history of the tax code, ignore the fact that policy is not race neutral, and that the tax system is not immune to racism, then we will continue to see the impact of black and brown communities and communities of color worsen in the most negative ways. We need to have a system that can ensure people have access to affordable health care and quality health care no matter what happens. This is Brandon McCoy, president of the New Jersey Policy Perspective. And then COVID happens, and that's just sort of, it, it, make, it makes the point perfectly clear that the healthcare system that we currently have, even were, if we were to improve in the ways that people want, uh, really wouldn't deliver the things that clearly folks need right now. Right. I, I mean, I appreciate uh, for a Frenchman like uh, Zuckman is, it's such a, a simple logic, <laughs> but such a heavily marketized economy in the US, it, it's it's a much more of a political question. But I, I mean, I see there's some leeway for some states to do something to address the healthcare disparities, which, as we know, affect people of colour so much more deeply. The governor in Kentucky has uh, recognised that there is this urgent need to address the healthcare disparities and he's promising free healthcare for all who need it and I wonder how he proposes to finance that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm waiting with bated breath to see that. It's it's a very interesting moment in America because you know, obviously the whole world is dealing with um, the pandemic and the financial crunch and economic crisis. But um, in America, we've had this reckoning with racism and you know systemic discrimination in the wake of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and so many others. And so it's really brought to the fore just how much government policies and budgets drive inequality. And as someone who works on budgets day in, day out and sort of has, you know, struggled to get people to realize how important budgets are and that budgets are moral documents that we should all care about, it's an incredible and somewhat unexpected thing to see, right? So it's wonderful to see the governor of Kentucky say, okay, we're going we're gonna to pursue a budgetary line item here that explicitly 
funds health care for black Kentuckians because this moment is very clearly calling out the, for, for the fact that we need direct and explicit programs and services and investments in black residents because they have been explicitly divested from for so long and disenfranchised for so long. For a very long time here, we've had a sort of a, um, a rising tide lifts all boats point of view in this country and saying, okay, well, you know, communities of color will benefit if we just invest in broad-based policies. And I think this is a moment where people are saying, okay, we know that's not true. Right? Like, it doesn't mean we shouldn't invest in those broad-based policies, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't push for uh, things that benefit everyone, but communities of color have been specifically and explicitly pushed behind and disenfranchised, and to address those harms, are going to have to have explicit policies that benefit them. Right, and I, I suppose one of the first things that he'll be looking at, uh, I'm talking about the governor of Kentucky, you know, things like um, wealth taxes uh, would be the obvious ones, and you always come up against the same objections anywhere in the world when you try to tax wealthy people. You know, they have this hallowed status, which is often very undeserved, of uh, being wealth creators when they're usually wealth extractors or very often, like in President Trump, uh, case, you know, just born into money, so never had to struggle for anything. They will say, oh, these people, they will leave. They will leave. <laughs> How do you respond to that? Yeah, and so this is a, definitely a common point of contention in New Jersey, where I work. New Jersey is a state with a lot of very wealthy people, and where I think we go back and forth with like Massachusetts and Connecticut for the wealthiest states in the country. And the way that we, you know, we look at it is, okay, well, how many wealthy people live here compared to previously? <laughs> and so going back into uh, 1994, New Jersey had approximately 10,500 tax filers who earned over $500,000 a year. The data at that time only provided information for everybody who made 500000 and over. That was like the highest level bracket you could you could find information on. So that was 1994, 10,500, 500,000 plus filers. And as of 2015, the number of folks who filed taxes in New Jersey with that level of income, 500,000 and more, was over 62,000. That's a six-fold increase in about 20 years. And the only times that we saw that number drop was during the two recessions that the country had, was the recession of 2001-2002 and then the Great Recession from 2007 to 2009. Other than those two periods, the number of wealthy tax filers in New Jersey has gone up continuously at a, at a very healthy rate. Obviously, you know, $500,000 adjusting for inflation is something that we've gotten taken take into account here, and it's tough to do when we don't have the data on every single individual tax file to figure out just how much money they're making. But still, you know, a six-fold increase in raw figures, a significant increase. And so the other point that we've made is that when people say, okay, people are going to leave New Jersey because of taxes, well, the number one place that people go to if they leave New Jersey is to New York State. New York State has higher taxes than we do. So, you know, it helps us make the point that it's not about the taxes. It's about what are the assets that you have? What are the opportunities for, you know, success, financial success that exists in your state? And that's what people are going to care about. That's what's going to keep them around. And we work with an organization called Patriotic Millionaires, uh, which is a bunch of uh, wealthy folks who make the same argument saying, you know, what's going to get me to leave New Jersey isn't, you know, another two cents tax on every dollar I make over a million dollars which is basically the millionaire's tax proposal that our governor has put forward in recent years, it's if I cannot ride the train 
and get to midtown Manhattan in less than 40 minutes, right? Like it's, it's if the assets that exist here are not high quality enough for me to do what I got to do and for me to be successful. It's, it's if the schools are not high quality enough for me to have faith and trust that my children are going to have a proper education. That's what's going to get me to leave New Jersey. And so I think reframing the conversation, you know, by using that information, using that data to say, look, increasing taxes isn't causing people to flee. And when you look at the people who actually are leaving New Jersey, it's people who have low incomes because they can't afford to live here because we haven't done enough to invest in services and assets to reduce the structural costs in their daily lives. That should be the focus, right? Right. And part of rolling back the history of white supremacy that formed today's structures and laws, which continue to exclude and discriminate against people of colour in the US, in the UK, in many countries, is reparations. It must be reparations. Yes, yes. When we think about the ways in which black Americans have been left out of opportunities to build wealth and security, not having the opportunity to own homes in an affordable fashion, not being able to live in diverse communities that have greater access to opportunity, not being able to achieve levels of education at an affordable rate that others have have been subsidized to do. For me, a, a more complete vision of reparations would be reducing the cost and reducing the barriers to opportunities to build wealth for black Americans. And that's going to require having a tax system that supports those investments. You know, um, former Representative John Conyers, who represented Michigan for so long, introduced a a reparations bill in every Congress since 1989 up until his his, uh, retirement and passing. It was just it was just a bill to study the concept of reparations. It wasn't even describing or prescribing what reparations should be. And that's gained more support in recent years, but it still hasn't happened. That should happen. And New Jersey recently passed a bill or a law supporting the formation of a reparations study commission. And just to ha- you know, being able to study this in earnest and saying what is it, what policies will succeed at reparative justice, I think is an important step. But we haven't even been able to sort of study it in the governmental space in an honest and earnest fashion. And so seeing that happen sometime soon is, is very exciting. And I think we should, it's going to allow for a more robust and comprehensive conversation about what reparations look like in America for black Americans. You've been listening to the Tapscast. Thanks for joining us. We're going to be talking more about reparations models in action very soon. I've been talking to Brandon McCoy of the New Jersey Policy Perspective on www.njpp.org. I've also been talking to Courtney Sanders of the Centre on Budget and Policy Priorities. You can find them on www.cbpp.org. All the details are in the show notes also for the other speakers. Thanks for listening. I'm going to take a much needed break next month, so I'll be back with you in September. Keep safe and well. Bye for now. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, no serious observers disagree that climate disruption, left unchecked, 
will mean disaster for human beings, among other species. Yet somehow, when it comes to actions that will either bring that annihilation closer or stave it off, corporate media get very specific and procedural, rather than putting things in a more urgent, more meaningful context. Hence the conversation around opening the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas drilling. It's being reported as a Trumpian bad idea. Is that enough? We'll hear from Carlin Itchok, Alaska State Director at the Wilderness Society. Also on the show, people who think politics means pulling a lever every four years are wrong. Voting is a far from perfect connection of people to power. But, put crudely, if it didn't matter at all, why would some people try so hard to keep other people, those who have less power and voice in every other way, from doing it? On the assumption that voting does matter, and that voting in November 2020 matters a lot, we'll talk about how to do it and make sure it counts with Stephen Rosenfeld, editor and chief correspondent of Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. That's coming up, and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. There are more ways to make your voice heard than voting in presidential elections, for sure. But voting remains a primary means of societal participation, and organizing the vote can be a powerful tool for community engagement and education, with impacts well beyond electoral politics. Given that this is 2020, listeners don't need to hear all the reasons voting is critical. But given that this is 2020, we have plenty of questions and concerns about how to do it. Our next guest is engaged with that critical and evolving set of questions. Reporter and author Stephen Rosenfeld is the editor and chief correspondent of Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. His most recent book is Democracy Betrayed, How Superdelegates Redistricting Party Insiders and the Electoral College Rigged the 2016 Election. He joins us now by phone from San Francisco. Welcome back to Counterspin, Stephen Rosenfeld. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, you have just written the 2020 Fall Voter Guide, How to Make Sure Your Vote Counts. And I would love to have you just talk us through some of the key elements there. My sense is that maybe the first thing is act early. Yes. Basically, people need to make a plan. And a lot of people are beginning to say this now. We heard this at the Democratic Convention. But what making a plan really means is getting ahead of what's going to be bureaucratic crunches and bottlenecks because the whole voting universe has been turned upside down by COVID. And what that means is that people are going to be unfamiliar with all the steps, including election officials and poll workers. So let's talk about what people really need to do. First of all, there's three ways you can vote, and you have to figure out which one is going to work for you. You can vote by mail or you receive a ballot in the mail. Then you can decide how you want to return it. Then you can vote early, which is at an in-person location, not necessarily a polling place. Sometimes it's a county office, city hall. 
And then there's Election Day, which is November 3rd, which is also in person. And in all those cases, it's more important than ever not just to be registered, but to really, really make sure your registration information is correct because if you're going to be voting from home, the ways that you're going to get that ballot and the way that that ballot is going to be vetted when it's returned, it's going to be checked against your address and the spelling of your name and your signature probably on your driver's license. So, you know, we can talk about this a little bit, but really it all starts with getting your registration information up to date, and you can check online in almost every state for that. And then it gets a little more complicated, the whole voting by mail thing. Do it. Here's the thing about voting by mail. East of the Rockies, before COVID, most states did not have high volumes of people. States like Florida, which were one of the highest, maybe had a quarter of the people voting by mail. So what does that mean? It means in most states you have to apply to, to get a ballot. Now, that's a separate process. That's a second application. Now, some states, there are a handful, like New Jersey and Vermont that are east of the Rockies, will be sending out ballots so voters don't have to do anything except being registered. But in other states, you'll either be getting an application sent to you if you have registered, or if you have voted in the last couple of years, you'll get one. If you haven't voted in like three or four years, you might have to re-register or check your registration or update everything so you're not left off. And then yet in other states like Ohio, you're totally on your own. You've got to figure out how to get an application, which usually means going online and downloading it and printing it. So it's really a range. It sounds like a lot of what you're saying is that different states are different, and so you can't just assume, like maybe you hear a news story that says, oh, there's going to be drop boxes. Well, that might not be in your state. That might not be applicable to you. So it sounds like there's really no substitute for kind of proactively informing yourself about what the particular rules and regulations and processes are for your state, and that better to do that early than to sit back and imagine it's going to come to you. When I talk to people who actually are developing the apps that, like, the Democratic campaigns are going to be using and a lot of people are going to be using, they say that the best information is your local county election office. You really want to deal with them. Mm -hmm. They say there are time lags between updating statewide government records and roles, you really don't want to deal with any middlemen. You don't want to deal with nonprofits, I have to say, and I work for one, that do, do voter registration and other things, because you have to make sure that the people who will be sending you a ballot or giving you one in a polling place have your information and it's correct, and you, you know, can't not necessarily trust that somebody else is going to do it for you. Now, you're right. It really varies state by state, and within some states, it even varies county to county. So let me tell you about one thing that I've been looking at this week, and I can't get clear answers on this, and this is a perfect indication about why people have to be proactive and there's more work. In Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, the three final swing states of 2016, the application forms to request an absentee ballot in the primaries have multiple boxes to check on them. And some people just checked, I want it for the primary. And some people just checked, I want it for the rest of the year. And nobody can tell me how many people did 
either one. So that means that some people may have checked boxes thinking, oh, I got this in the primary, I'm all set. Or they did it in such a rush because the pandemic was breaking, they don't remember. What that means that people, if they're going to want to vote by mail, they have to go back and either update or confirm or apply again. It's a big pain in the butt. But this is a starting line detail. It's a small thing that has such big consequences. And this is indicative of the landscape we're in. Now, we can talk about other things, but really this starting line is if you want to be in the game, it's not just being registered. You've got to be on tap, on track to get that mailed out ballot. Absolutely. And just, you know, as people, it's going to be very frustrating to read on November 4th about chaos in the polling places and confusion. It's the story now about how to make it work properly or as well as it can and not something that we want to look back on, you know, after it's been a mess. What I'm getting is decide early how you want to vote and make sure your information is up to date. But one of the other points that you make in the guide is be ready to pivot, have a plan B, do your early thing, but if you get frustrated or thwarted, you can't give up. Yeah, in the spring, the intelligentsia of the election policy world basically said, oh, everyone can just vote by mail, it's not going to be a problem. They didn't realize that a lot of people, especially non-white people in metro areas and urban areas, don't want to vote by mail because they want to cast it and see it taken and counted. They just don't trust the system. And in other places, that people just didn't even talk about voting early. So what's happened now is there's been a little bit of a recalibration. But really, what people should try to do is think of Election Day as the last resort. So what happens is, like my parents in New York, when they did not get their ballots in time for the New York primary, what should they have done? Well, my dad, he didn't want to take the risk of going out because he's in his upper 80s. And that's really sad. And other people, you know, might be in that same kind of situation. You know, what do you do when your ballot doesn't arrive if you order one? Well, there are things to do. We can tell people about that later. But really, it involves showing up in person and having the right credentials. And that goes back to, hey, is your registration correct? Is it the address correct? Did they spell your name properly? Did you have a middle initial on the form or it's on your driver's license? Does your signature look like it looks on your driver's license? Because this is the kind of stuff in states where Republicans are going to get very finicky. They're going to use this to just try to disqualify or they're going to yell and scream about this. And the only antidote for that is to have everything be really orderly. So that's where we're at. Well, COVID-19 was obviously a curveball, ham-fisted interference with the Postal Service, another, you know, curveball of sorts. But then again, we need resilience and responsiveness built in, you know, to our system. So looking forward, if we can take the liberty to do that, um, once we get through this, if we can take the liberty to imagine that, what is suggested to you in terms of substantive improvements to the process? Well, everything that deletes or unnecessary bureaucratic steps from the starting line to the finish line, and we could list a lot of those. I mean, come on, states like California, Nevada, Utah. Utah is not exactly a blue state. 
are mailing everybody a ballot. They don't have this ridiculous application process, which creates a ton of costs for printing, postage, a ton of manpower hours. It's just unnecessary bureaucracy. The same thing is true when it comes to people who don't get their ballots in the mail. They show up at a polling place. They have the same technology in Los Angeles and Georgia. In Los Angeles, they will check you in and take you off the list of getting a mailed-out ballot and give you a regular ballot, and you're off, and you vote. In Georgia, they have to call the county election board to get permission to do that whole thing. This is just intentional. There are so many things like this that just slow things down. People leave. And that's – so you know, it's just – do you want it to be an efficient, transparent process where technology works well? and you have paper and digital technology backing each other up? Or do you want to create these ridiculous steps and procedures that really uh, cause people to, to turn away? These technicalities, they have political overtones and implications, and you know, they're not just technicalities. All right, then. We've been speaking with Stephen Rosenfeld. He's the editor and chief correspondent of Voting Booth of the Independent Media Institute. You can find the voter's guide we've been discussing through their site, independentmediainstitute.org. It's also online at nationalmemo.com. Stephen Rosenfeld, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Oh, it's really a pleasure. Thank you. With Arctic refuge drilling approved, focus shifts to legal battles and market forces, ran one headline, And it's true. The Trump administration's push to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas drilling, reflected in a so-called record of decision this week from the Interior Department approving oil leasing in the refuge's coastal plain, is meeting with legal resistance. A number of environmental groups are ready to go to court to prevent incursions into the refuge, federally protected since Eisenhower. True also... Analysts question how popular leases will be, given the fact that the COVID-era oil market ain't what it used to be, and major financial institutions like Citigroup and Goldman Sachs have said they won't finance any development in the area. But what's lost if legal and market frameworks are the only ones we use to see what's at stake here or to tell the story? Carlin Itchok is Alaska State Director at the Wilderness Society. He joins us now by phone from Anchorage. Welcome to Counterspin, Carlin Itchok. Hello. Thanks for having me today. Well, to be clear, I have read a number of valuable and interesting political and legal accounts about the fight over the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. But I wondered if you could orient us a bit differently and talk a little about the meaning or significance of this piece of land and the life it supports. Yes, absolutely. And what brought us to this conversation is that the BLM has recently issued a bad record of decision resulting from a fundamentally flawed final environmental impact statement. And what's significant about the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the coastal plain, Janine, is that the Gwich'in and the Inupiaq indigenous people who depend on the herd for their survival, and frankly, all of us, all of us Americans who have a stake in the public land in the refuge, deserve better. 
well, you say BLM, that's the Bureau of Land Management. Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, essentially the, the boss of that, you know, is he's now going around saying, well, Congress mandated this leasing process in 2017. We're just meeting our obligations. But it isn't as though Congress responding to the call of the people, you know, upended this decades-old policy of protection. How did this happen legislatively? Congress was not listening to the call of the people. In fact, in a 2016 survey conducted by the Hart Research for the Center for American Progress, two-thirds of the respondents said that they oppose efforts to open the Arctic Refuge to drilling. A majority of Americans oppose opening the Arctic Refuge to drilling. And it was unconscionable that the Republicans hijacked the federal budget process and used the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act to force the Arctic Refuge drilling over the objection of the majority of Americans. So they snuck it into the tax bill, and if asked about it, they'd say, well, yeah, all the, all the resources that we get from it are going to offset these tax cuts. Yeah, they snuck it in the dark of night and without following the public process. Well, let's come back to that process just for a second. I mean, you sort of wonder why you have to do environmental impact statements for fossil fuel production at all at this point. I mean, we we know what the impact is of, of fossil fuel production, and it's unacceptable. But in this particular case, I take it your sense is that the review process, such as it was that the Bureau of Land Management did, was not thorough or was not substantive. Right. It was not thorough and it was not substantive. And the timing was horrible, as you mentioned at the top of the interview, that all of this is happening during the pandemic. And when the federal government was conducting the public process for the final environmental impact statement, they were trying to conduct it online and virtually. And Many of the indigenous people who live in the Arctic or in rural areas in and near the Arctic Refuge don't have that great of connectivity, are unable to maybe participate fully. And also the timing is horrible because folks were focused on keeping themselves and their families and loved ones safe from this pandemic, which is adversely impacting minorities, as we know, and and indigenous people. Uh, So the timing was bad, and the process was completely flawed. And as much as they had a statement, it didn't deny that there would be harmful impacts, it seems to me, as far as I could tell. But they sort of said, well, we'll limit the use of heavy equipment during the caribou's calving season. You know, it, it just doesn't seem like it's at all taking seriously the idea that these would be harmful impacts. That's correct. And the coastal plain of the refuge is the birthing ground of the porcupine caribou herd, which helps sustain the indigenous Gwich'in and Anupak people who've occupied this region for thousands of years. And as we know, oil and gas drilling would have devastating impacts on this pristine and fragile ecosystem caused by the massive infrastructure needed, as you just mentioned, to extract and transport the oil. And this is a remote area of the Arctic. And drilling in the Arctic is very, very risky. Chronic spills of oil and other toxic substances onto the fragile tundra and ice 
would forever scar this now pristine land and disrupt its wildlife. And as we all know, we're facing a climate crisis and burning more fossil fuels, the process of flaring and even introducing more fossil fuels into the economy and into the atmosphere would be counterintuitive, especially in the Arctic where it is seeing most of the impacts of climate change. It would be like trying to put out a house fire by lighting the other side of the house on fire. It makes no sense. As just a large, wild space, the refuge plays a role in mitigating climate change beyond itself, doesn't it, if you will, just because of the fact that it is a large, wild space? Yes, in the time of the climate crisis, we need to be protecting large swaths of land like the Arctic Refuge and using them for the future preservation and mitigation of climate change and recognizing them not only for their beauty and important ecological value, but also the important sequestration value that they play in mitigating climate change. Well, I wanted to say it isn't that in reporting indigenous communities are entirely unmentioned. Sometimes it feels a bit as though they're kind of tossed into lists, you know, caribou, arctic fox, indigenous people, you know, a a list of potential quote-unquote obstacles, you know, to development. When those indigenous voices are included, they don't all say the same thing. I wonder what you make of an argument that I have seen that says that opposing extractive industry is actually the anti-indigenous position, that it's, that's for outsiders who don't understand that you know, people in the region need jobs that the industry provides. How do you respond when you hear that? Yeah, I think that uh, it's not lost on me that not all of the indigenous people are on the same region when it comes to developing the refuge, and that's true for any issue. But you have to look at what are the interests of those people that are taking a particular position. After the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971, where Congress created 13 regional village corporations in Alaska, in the last 60 years now we've had a new type of development and ownership of these corporations, many of which are multi-million dollar and billion dollar corporations, and some of them have a vested interest in the development of the refuge, and that's created differing opinions and ideas on whether or not the refuge should be protected. And so it's important to look at who is making what arguments, and also uh, many of the indigenous people that do want to protect the refuge, such as the Gwich'in Steering Committee led by Bernadette Dementa, who's the executive director have been leading the fight to protect the coastal plain, which is the sacred calving ground of the porcupine caribou herd, and is so sacred that the Gwich'in don't even step foot on the calving ground. But then you have folks like Inupiaq elder Robert Thompson, who lives in Koktovik, in the refuge, and has been fighting for much of the last 40 years to protect the caribou herd, and also the polar bears who are losing their denning with the snow and the ice melting. So there are numerous other Inupiaq folks and indigenous people who have been fighting to protect the refuge. And I think it's important to see what folks' motivation are and 
most of the indigenous people agree that we are in a climate crisis and that we need to do everything we can to mitigate the climate crisis. And I think, you know, as folks in, in other communities just reject the, the trade-off, you know, of jobs for, for nature, you know, we shouldn't be having to make that choice to begin with. It's too difficult a corner to put someone in. Well, I, I just wanted to ask you finally, I did want to note legislatively that I understand that the House has since voted to block uh, drilling in the refuge again, but the Senate won't take up that bill. So that's what's happening there. But just finally, you read that, oh, well, it's going to be tied up in court for years, and if drilling happens, it won't be for years and years. But that doesn't mean that we can be passive about it. It doesn't mean that, you know, exploring wouldn't be disruptive. So what are you at the Wilderness Society and other organizations doing to resist this it's just so backward-looking plan, and what can folks do themselves to get involved? That's a great question. We're keeping the pressure on the banks. We have, as you mentioned, five of the largest banks have decided not to fund drilling in the Arctic Refuge. We're working on putting the pressure on Bank of America to join that group. Listeners can do to help convince Bank of America and their board of directors to not lend any money for drilling in the refuge, that would be wonderful. Also, I would encourage folks to learn as much as they can about the issue and get involved locally. Community-led conservation goes a long way, even though you may feel far away from the Arctic refuge. When I was just up in the refuge a few weeks ago, I was there with the executive director of Audubon, and they're pointing out that over 250 species of birds migrate to the refuge. They come from all 50 states. And so we are all impacted by what happens in the refuge, not just through the birds, but also through the climate impacts. And so I encourage people to learn as much as they can about the issue. Contact your congressmen and women. We need to join together and the Wilderness Society and our conservation partners are going to use every legal tool that we can to stop the oil and gas leases from happening. We've been speaking with Carla Nitchock, Alaska State Director for the Wilderness Society. They're online at wilderness.org. Thank you so much, Carla Nitchock, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. Much appreciated. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosato. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.